I call my life now a portfolio life. It's not right for everyone and what I mean by that is that I'm not just doing one thing for one company or one institution. I've been man I've managed to uh, link up a number of different things in my portfolio life from the Milken Institute to uh, investment projects to being an advisor on uh, two private equity funds that all of these things reinforce and are somewhat aligned with, with each other uh, in that they all are related to bringing uh, people or ideas or capital together. Hopefully here maybe I'll echo your words that maybe make things better to have an impact. This is Steve Stein and you're listening to Inside Asia. That was the voice of Curtis Chin and in this episode we're talking about what it means to have what Curtis calls a portfolio life. We also move the conversation in the direction of Asia in transition and take from Curtis his view on the emerging and potentially disruptive influence of China. His comments come at a critical time when the world is debating how best to engage with this emerging superpower in order to secure political detente, new prosperity, and greater integration of our global economy. This should sound like familiar territory to our regular Inside Asia listeners. In our previous episode, I spoke with China expert and business advisor Jim McGregor. We discussed the growing rift between hardliners and those who would rather appease than rebuke the Middle Kingdom. As you'll hear, Curtis leans toward the hardline. But first, let's meet the man. Politico, public relations specialist, former ambassador, private equity advisor, digital nomad, and public commentator. Curtis is many things to many people, and while he likes to think of himself as a kind of modern-day renaissance man, his parents say that's code for unemployed. I started by asking him to take us on a tour of his professional past. Yeah, but it's been quite a, a career ride, even from, even from being a little kid in the U.S. and Asia, to a career that's a little bit all over Asia, but again, more Southeast than East Asia. Well, I want to get to that because um, I always ask my guests, you know, how, what brought you to Asia to begin with? And, and your story goes back a, li a, little, uh, a little ways, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, people on your podcast can't see me, but uh, um, clearly I'm looking pretty Asian. Uh, Chinese-American. Uh, my great-great-grandparents moved to uh, really the West Coast, Washington State and California uh, from China, but to build the railroads or to help the people building the railroads, so it's been some time that my family's been in the U.S. since the late 1800s. But my dad was a career U.S. Army officer, you know, out of Washington State. And so as a kid, I actually grew up in Asia. I grew up in Thailand, uh, in Korea, in Taiwan, and all over the U.S., Arizona, Maryland, and Virginia. And then my eventual working career in the private sector and in government uh, took me back to Asia. So I've been based in Beijing, in Tokyo, in Manila, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, and now uh, a little bit in Singapore also. What was your first professional move back with Burson Marsteller, the big public relations firm? Yeah, so my uh, really my first like real long-time job, you know, forget all those internships I did in Washington, but really a formative internship I did in Washington when my father was based with the U.S. Army in Virginia was a White House internship under Ronald Reagan, tells you how old I am, uh, where I was assigned to the then Vice President George H.W. Bush. Someone I'd met at the White House, a terrific woman named Sheila Tate, working for Nancy Reagan as her press secretary, joined Burson Marsteller, and when I finished college, she brought me over and then really I'm so really actually so thankful to the Bush family. My career really followed uh, the Bush family. So jumping between the private sector at this big corporate PR firm, Burson Marsteller, and then into the uh, administration whenever both the father served and then the son served. And I had a chance to work in Washington with the U.S. government. And my last big job was when the, the son, George W. Bush, became president. I had the chance to first serve on an advisory board at the State Department mm -hmm. under Secretaries Rice, 
uh, Colin Powell and then Secretary Condoleezza Rice, and then moved to uh, Manila as the U.S. ambassador to the Asian Development Bank. And that's for, if your listeners don't know, that's kind of an Asian version of the World Bank focused on poverty reduction, growing economies in Asia. So I moved myself to Manila for two years under President George W. Bush, and I was really honored also to serve for two more years under President uh, Barack Obama, so both under Bush and Obama. And, and that, w- that was a, a, a representative role in terms of U.S. participation, ADB, so every other participating nation had an ambassador as well? Yeah, it's structured a little bit differently. So um, what, what these kind of multilateral posts are called are ambassadors to multilateral organizations. So for example, most countries will have an ambassador to the United Nations, right? A very multilateral uh, post. Um, the United States will have ambassadors to NATO, uh, to the EU. And for whatever reason, we also have one uh, that is assigned to the board of directors of the Asian Development Bank, again, a multilateral financial institution based in Manila. Uh, but there are only 12 directors on that board. And when I was there, I think the government of the Philippines and the government of India gave the person the rank of ambassador, but it really varies. The other nine uh, board uh, members uh, that are not the United States, Japan, or China, those representatives represent really six to eight countries, let's say. And so it's really up to the the senders what rank they get. But the day-to-day role there was really uh, um, helping shape, helping direct, hopefully helping improve infrastructure projects and investments throughout the Asia-Pacific region. So although I might have lived in Manila, you know, I spent quite a bit of time uh, visiting in my oversight role projects throughout the region from Afghanistan to China uh, to the far Pacific Island nation, seeing the good and bad of development uh, work. And, and that's my impression of your career. You've been just across the board in so many different areas, so many different sectors. Um, but then at one point you, you, uh, you left, that, that role ended uh, about the time we met, um, and you started to think about what would I do next? What, what, do you, what did you do? And, and what were your thoughts at that point when the ambassador role was over? Sure. Well, it's funny because, you know, I have uh, Asian American parents. <laughs> so uh, when I said, I think I'm going to take a year off, uh, maybe the response was, maybe you should take two weeks off. You mean that never uh, ends? You know, entire, your entire life, the mom and dad are still kind of at your heels? Yeah, because they don't want me to move back into the basement. No. Uh, so uh, uh, luckily, I had the opportunity uh, really to take off a year. And so I think maybe I got advice from you, Steve. I can't remember, but I moved to Bali. Sorry uh, about that. And uh, I think I was really only there like six months. And then yeah. the other six months, I spent traveling throughout Asia. Right. What were you uh, looking for? The region. Which, I really wanted some time off to think about what would I do next? Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe for 20 years, I'd work really full-time, nonstop, in the private sector with this big, you know, corporate uh, public relations firm, and even with them, moving with them every three or four years. So I was with them, uh, again, uh, in Beijing, in Hong Kong, in Tokyo, in Washington, in New York, and in Switzerland. So every two or three years moving, running big clients uh, for that big firm. What a terrific experience that was. And then in my government role in Washington and then overseas in Manila. So I really wanted some time to think, uh, what do I do next? Uh, what was it like, Curtis, taking your foot off the accelerator like that, going from 1,000 miles an hour down to 10 or 15? Um, I'd say it was an adjustment, quite uh, frankly, but it was a decision that I decided would be right uh, for me to make at that time. Mm-hmm. You think about the, people's phases of their careers, you know, I don't think it might have made sense to do it at 
23 or 28, but I think everyone needs to find for themselves what is that moment or time, that inflection point, when they decide I want to do something different and build on what I had done before in a different way. So I had the opportunity uh, to go back uh, to my old firm, uh, to take an in-house job at maybe one of the big corporations that I represented prior to my life on the board of directors of the Asian Development Bank. But before jumping at that next big, great job, I wanted to decide what could I do that was a little bit different. I mean, I've been very blessed as I think about what my 25-year-old, uh, uh, your young career, I'd like to say, uh, that I've had the chance to work in the private sector, the public sector, and now in my new iteration in both the nonprofit sector with the nonprofit economic think tank called the Milken Institute, and as a bit of an entrepreneur being affiliated with two equity funds, as well as a direct investment project in Thailand, which I've now moved back to as my base in Asia. But, but it took you some time to align against all these interesting opportunities. At any point were you thinking, wait a minute, Bali's great, but I've just got to get back into the thick of it? Well, I made that decision I would take a year off. Mm. So even during that year, there were opportunities that came my way. And I said, well, no, I can wait. You know, if it's right for me, it'll be there in three months. It'll be there in one month or it won't be there. Yeah. Um, no, I made that decision. And again, I was very blessed and fortunate to be able to take that year off because there are many others in similar situations. You're in a big government role or you're in a, a corporate role where for whatever reason, you, you know, the president loses an election or the company is bought by someone else that your job ends. Some people struggle because of the ego gets in the way. They feel like I'm supposed to be doing something else or I was that guy. I had the title of ambassador or CEO or MD. And all of a sudden, you know, the lights go off and you're out and uh, you're trying to figure out what to do next. Did you have uh, the dark night of the soul kind of moments or was it pretty much, no, I'm clear, I'm free, I'm easy, I'm okay with this, I'm going to reinvent myself on my terms? You know, I have to say that uh, there was none of those uh, dark soul uh, moments. You know, people that know me, I'm pretty easygoing, right? Uh, and I have a philosophy that everything actually will be okay. <laughs> and, and I think it is. Even in difficult times, yeah. life will be okay. Yeah, and um, I think based on, on where you went with this, and you have a very clear, uh, just looking at the kind of work you're doing, um, and, and even I think the way you, way you present yourself is like, you know, making improvements for the world, creating and getting involved in things that are gonna make a difference. What is that about your personality that drove you at this stage in your life to take on this kind of portfolio approach and do things where you feel that they're good for the world, good for organizations or communities. Well, first, it's kind of you uh, to say that. And you use that word, uh, portfolio, which for me is actually one of my favorite words because, you know, I call my life now a portfolio life. It's not right for everyone. And what I mean by that is that I'm not just doing one thing for one company or one institution. I've been ma I've managed to uh, link up a number of different things in my portfolio life, from the Milken Institute to uh, investment projects to being an advisor on uh, two private equity funds. That all of these things reinforce and are somewhat aligned with each, with each other, uh, in that they all are related to bringing uh, people or ideas or capital together. Hopefully, here maybe I'll echo your words to maybe make things better, to have an impact. And so when I think about my career, maybe it, you know, maybe everyone becomes their father or their grandfather, their mother or their grandmother. But I think about even my father and my grandfather, but particularly my dad as a career U.S. military officer. It's one way to, to serve your country, um, but there's many ways people can serve. And so I would say to people listening that you can serve your company, your country, your institution, um, 
in many ways, and you can serve it also in many different sectors. So I think through public sector, private sector, nonprofit sectors, hopefully I, I've built over time the ability to go from sector to sector, but with that notion that we can make things better. You know, one thing I'm gonna, gonna steal from one of my colleagues at the Milken Institute is a line that you might have just this amazing idea for a business or a nonprofit, but if you don't have any capital, unfortunately it might just stay an idea. And so for me, you know, each role I play, I'm also always learning. And so one thing I really learned a, a lot in my most recent role working with this Milken Institute team, this nonprofit, nonpartisan economic think tank, is the importance and the value of capital and getting people access to capital mm -hmm. so that they can have an impact. And that impact could simply be one of the most amazing things, which is simply to create a job for someone else, or it could be these bigger, grander ideas. We're gonna solve a real key social problem. And, and let's talk about some of those initiatives. For instance, um, in Thailand, uh, what, were, what are some of the problems, things you're doing in Thailand? There's, you're on the board of, of a company there. Yeah. You're also involved in Nepal, I believe, with, uh, with an impact fund. Walk us through some of the work you're doing and explain to us why you think those initiatives are actually going to make a difference. Absolutely. So, you know, again, in my portfolio life, I, I have core work uh, with this nonprofit economic think tank in Singapore. So we're in Singapore uh, today. Um, and there really, and we're convening people with capital, people with great ideas to try and move things forward in a number of areas. One big area of the Milk Institute's focus is health. Another area is just this just point of how do you increase prosperity? How do you create jobs? How do you grow an economy? And so I'm trying to do a little bit of, my, of that myself in my work in Thailand, where I'm an advisor uh, to the CEO of a great company called Equator Pure Nature. It's a Thailand-based uh, company that's producing a line of natural consumer products, like laundry detergent, fabric softener, body wash, all under the brand name Pipper Standard. But why it's so, for me, such a wonderful thing, it's not just about innovative cleaning products. You are working with uh, farmers in central Thailand to develop a patented line of products, these Pipper Standard products, using pineapple. But what is key, so it's taking technology, you know, patented uh, pineapple really enzymes uh, to produce a cleaning product, but more than a cleaning product, I think we're trying to change, we are changing uh, a whole industry segment of laundry detergent and fabric softener. So these are natural products. United States, uh, for those of you listening from the US, you might know companies like the Honest Company out of Los Angeles run by Jessica Alba. Uh, I think there's a company called Seventh Generation that might have been bought by a big consumer products company. Um, but there's already in the United States and in Europe acceptance of the value of products that aren't full of chemicals. So it's interesting coming out of Thailand, a developing market still, that you know there's an appetite for uh, natural-based versus chemical-based products. Was it, was it something, a, a, a domestic market demand driven thing or recognition that the world is looking for alternative detergents and therefore Thailand's a great place to manufacture and create them? You know, it's both of that, but I really think the key, and sadly it's across Asia, is that Asia is increasingly polluted. Um, and it's very difficult for you or I really to change all the air around us or all the water around us, but we can change what we bring into our homes. And that message from Pipper Standard that a healthy environment begins at home really has taken on uh, or has taken got traction in Thailand, but also in markets like Taiwan and Korea, where again, uh, these are countries where there is a large segment of people with more disposable income. So they can pay a little bit more for products in these categories, mm -hmm. but more importantly, people will pay a little bit of a premium 
if their health is involved. Mm -hmm. So we see tremendous pickup from people that either have skin allergies or a new mom might have a new baby and she wants to make sure her baby isn't exposed to all these chemicals. So that's just you know one example of my portfolio life. We're trying to do something, I think we're in like 12, 13 markets now around Asia, but all the way to the Middle East, uh, to Kuwait, where again, people are looking through all the product choices out there and wanting to see something that maybe will make things better in their own lives. And, and Curtis, given your background, your experience, what do you bring to the table for them? What are you offering them? Well, well, part of it, I guess it's really from my Burson Marsteller days of dealing with marketing, regulation, understanding uh, consumers. Mm -hmm. And so I bring that perspective, but also the broader issue of that many of the markets we're in mm -hmm. are countries that I've worked in or lived in. Mm -hmm. um, but whether it's there or with a, a small private equity fund, in Nepal, you know, I think part of my value is also being that sounding board, being able, using my own experiences, uh, to react to some of the things that the founder or CEO of an organization mm -hmm. uh, might be thinking about. And so, uh, one that you mentioned earlier was a terrific small private equity fund that's focused just on Nepal, a place that I had really uh, first gone to, I think, is like a 20-year-old. And that's a, a, a private equity fund called the Dolma Fund, D-O-L-M-A, uh, founded by a terrific guy, uh, Tim Gotcher, which I think I met through you. And uh, there they've taken a series of, let's say, one to three million dollar investments in the Nepal uh, private sector, so a range of Nepal private sector entities. You know, because I think Tim, like me, like many others, maybe even like, dare I say, my big, big boss, Mike Milken, we really see the value of investing uh, uh, capital in human capital, mm -hmm. of the value of the private sector to create jobs and transform economies. You know, I think about Nepal and all that Nepal has gone through since I first began visiting, what, 25 years ago, many ups and downs, but Nepal's future will also be reliant on a strong private sector. Yeah, and that's quite, something the Dolma Fund is very much engaged in. You're quite adamant on this point about the role of capital and big capital. And it's not just like trickling in funds here and there to support a hydro project or sustainable energy here or you know, basically an agribusiness there. You're talking about large private equity organizations starting to get on board with the idea that impact investing is actually just good investing. And therefore, they should start to think a lot deeper and, and broader about this. What are your hopes and expectations for that happening in Asia in the next uh, two to three years? Of course, my hopes are very high. You know, I'm always very optimistic. But I also am very realistic that when, you know, besides the Doma Fund, uh, I'm an executive advisor uh, to a PE fund that's private equity fund that's really out of Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, called TAIL Partners, T-A-E-L. That's an acronym for the Asian entrepreneur's legacy because some of the original money didn't just come from big institutional uh, investors but also some uh, high net worth families in Asia. And so Tail Partners is now working on what would be a third fund really focused on something I did at the Asian Development Bank, focused on sustainable urban infrastructure. So waste to energy plants, let's say in Thailand, or addressing uh, wastewater management issues elsewhere in Southeast Asia. And so, you know, there it's a much bigger scale. So let's say they have had assets under management of $1.4 billion versus, let's say, uh, uh, paper standard, maybe it's valued at $30 million. So very different uh, uh, size entities, but both hopefully having a real impact on a region. And, and I, I like that I'm involved in both because it also underscores me that it's not just big capital, but capital, no matter how big or how small, if invested wisely, mm -hmm. if nurtured, mm -hmm. can lead to so much more. So yes, I have high hopes for the big 
PE funds. But I also have to be realistic that that will only happen when the people that are putting money into those PE funds also see the value of investments that have real impact. And people need to think through, what is that trade-off? Is there a trade-off between real social impact and then their financial returns? And, and with those investors, we're talking about large pension funds, sovereign funds, uh, university funds, all of whom believe that they should take a stand on some of these social, environmental governance issues and uh, therefore require that any future investment using their money uh, uh, comply. Is that the idea? That's the idea, but then the issue becomes comply with what? You know, there are certain uh, people that will advocate, certain, you know, the lingo of this kind of sector is ESG, so environment, social governance. So people might say, um, you shouldn't invest in anything that like takes more water out of the ground than puts back into the ground. Right? And that's come up when uh, soft, uh, uh, soft drink companies have been accused of, well, you're really draining the water to produce this product. Um, are you recycling your water, putting uh, water back in? Yeah. And, and by so, the way, those cans and bottles, uh, would you do something about those, please? Absolutely. Yeah. And so, but then should a fund rule out investing in that area? And part of the challenge is what metrics, you know, what standards should a given fund's board say those are the ones we're going to follow? I mean, the reality is that there's so many different measures of impact. And so the degree that one uh, fund chooses this one versus another one very well could shape their investments for good and for bad. But, but in the, that can also become a barrier because it becomes so convoluted and unclear and there's different interpretations about what it means versus on the investee versus the investor side. You now have a situation when people might opt to say, well, it's just too difficult. Let's not do this at all. Well, I think uh, my hope would be they wouldn't say that, but they might say, let's focus on these one or two areas. Yeah. So, so but cherry pick. Well, cherry pick is one way to describe it, but also uh, focus is another way. So, for example, uh, some of the funds in the past have said we won't invest in, say, gun manufacturers. That's a very specific, it's also what we call kind of like a, a negative. We're not going to invest in these kind of negative uh, areas. But that's a specific metric, mm -hmm. right? But a more positive one might be we are going to invest in companies that do X, mm. right? And so it really varies, and that's where I don't want to be too judgmental because all of these incremental steps by individual companies and funds and investors are very important. But the key is that they aren't whitewashing all the bad things they might be doing, or some people say all the bad things that they might be investing in. But here again, I, I, uh, uh, as an American, I would give a shout out to American companies, American funds, as well as European ones that are playing more of a leading role in that area. You know, I spent so much of my time in Asia. Most of my career has been in Asia and the U.S. Asia is slowly moving forward, but not yet at that pace of American and European companies. So even in my work with Pipper Standard, with this uh, uh, line of natural uh, cleaning products, really these are following trends in the United States and Europe. Mm -hmm. The first movement towards natural products, you know, regulated term organic products, was in the United States states and Europe as people wanted natural foods. And then there was a movement towards uh, women in particular wanted cosmetics that were natural. They didn't want to put chemicals uh, on their face. And now we're seeing a movement for other kinds of consumer products. So that's slowly coming to Asia, which is a terrific thing, right? So each country will do it at its own pace based on the level of their own consumer markets. This is Steve Stein and you're listening to Inside Asia. I'm with Curtis Chin, former U.S. Ambassador to the Asian Development Bank and now Portfolio Professional. When we come back, a discussion on the changing Asia landscape and prospects for China. Stay with us. You're listening to my conversation with Curtis Chin. 
He's had more than his fair share of professional successes, but rather than stick with a big organization career, he branched out six years ago to chart a new professional path, one of his own making. Today, he's a roving Asia commentator, senior fellow at the Milken Institute, board member, and advisor to a handful of impact investment funds. He is, in his own words, an advocate for a better world. Curtis's portfolio life affords him a unique perspective on Asia, and rather than spend his days serving private or public sector taskmasters, he's contributing a portion of his time to groups with a stated mission to advance Asia and its many causes. Let's get back to our conversation. You know, Curtis, you've been across this region in so many different ways and so many different capacities. Um, with all the growth and improvement and an increase in the middle middle uh, income, uh, y- you also see a whole variety of issues and problems emerging around environment. Uh, you know, uh, there there are, are health issues, there are population and urbanization problems, uh, there are education issues. Um, with every developmental story, there's there's a downside. What do you fear for or think about when you think about Asia's progress to date, and what do you think uh, are some of the key concerns they should have in order to continue to progress in a meaningful way? You know, first I have to say Asia is so tremendously diverse. You know, when I was at the Asian Development Bank, uh, when I look at the member uh, states from Asia, in one as far west as Azerbaijan, Armenia, and the nation of Georgia, and all the way east of Vanuatu and Karabakh. So Asia is so diverse. But when I think about that wide variety of Asian nations, the reality is that the story of the day, and it's very much a topical story these days, is the rise of China. Mm. You know, I'm often a critic of China because of its human rights records, its uh, mistreatment of foreign companies, its mistreatment of its own citizens. But I think we also have to acknowledge that the Chinese have been able really to lift hundreds of millions uh, of people out of poverty. It wasn't because of a World Bank loan or an ADB grant. Um, uh, and I'm also going to say it wasn't just because of the Chinese government. It was really that the Chinese government was wise enough or was forced to think through how did they improve that economy, but it was freeing up the Chinese people. So when I think about the, really, the, the trends that we'll continue to talk about the next 10, 20 years will be, as China rises and grows, how does China itself deal with the rest of the region, and how does the rest of the region deal with China? China won't be, the alone, uh, won't be alone in directing what the situation uh, is. And given the size of the Chinese market, what, 1.3 billion uh, people. What China does in terms of the environment, uh, in terms of labor practices, will disproportionately affect the rest of the region. Mm. Um, And who's next? India, Indonesia, big nations uh, too. Yeah. What about the U.S. trade issue, U.S.-China trade issue right now? I mean, they say as a result of the tensions, a lot of organizations are shifting their manufacturing base to Southeast Asia, Vietnam in particular, but Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, elsewhere. Um, those are beneficiaries of, you know, an unfortunate, unfortunate political economic rivalry. Uh, how, what are the implications for that beyond economic, economic growth in terms of pollution, environmental, or even job-related? Well, first, you know, the trend that we're seeing of companies moving parts of their supply chain out of China was already happening before these tensions. As China got wealthier, wages went up. And so companies are looking for other places to move. But now it's it's both, you know, uh, an excuse, a cover uh, for indeed countries to make invest or companies to make investments beyond China or move a company or move factories out of China. So the, the one the point you just asked about was the environment. The reality right now, you know, goes back to the metrics. The reality right now is that when I think about, you know, all the emissions we talk about, I saw one piece of data where uh, 
China is responsible for, let's say, for 27%. Uh, but to defend China, uh, they might be responsible for 27% of the uh, uh, emissions of this certain, I can't remember if it was carbon dioxide or, or what it was. But, uh, um, but per capita, with all their people, no, they aren't the big problem. Yes. It's the developed nations. Yes. It's the U.S. It's yes. Australia. It's Canada. It's how you carve uh, it. It's Europe. So it's how you carve it. Is it a per capita issue because everyone is equal? Yes. Uh, or is it the overall you add it all up? So, you know, clearly uh, that's a discussion that will continue. Mm -hmm. I think China, just like with trade, uh, uh, but China on the environment, once they really see how it benefits their own citizens, hopefully we will see movement. And I think that's already what's been happening with both the environment and product safety. You know, so many Chinese people, if they're able to go to Hong Kong or go to uh, you know Australia even, sometimes you see what they buy is milk powder yeah. uh, because there were terrible scandals in China about uh, uh, milk powder being polluted and babies died in China. So some company was trying to make money at the expense of the lives of Chinese babies. How you know terrible and ridiculous is that? But it, and it's also led to China, many Chinese people not trusting their own milk powder, yeah. right? And so, but as China recognized, you know, it's not you know make money at all costs. Those companies will also uh, change. And so for the environment, as China sees the consequences of, on its own citizens of pollution, they're beginning to change there too. Mm. And so my hope, and people know I'm an optimist, uh, my hope is that these long-standing issues that not just the United States, but Asian nations, European nations, have had with China about all the restrictions on nine Chinese companies, about forced technology transfers, about stolen intellectual property, that these issues that many non-Chinese companies have had with China mm. also uh, uh, will be better you know, addressed as China sees how they too will benefit from intellectual property rights protection, uh, from uh, you know, uh, uh, technology that if you own, you keep or you license it. And right now, it's been very interesting when I see this U.S.-China uh, back and forth. And I, I, you know, I have some sympathy with people that say, well, actually, uh, what President Trump is doing is what China has long done to everyone else. China is getting a taste of its own medicine. China complains about treatment of its own companies. But you get off the plane in Beijing, where is my Google? Where is my Gmail? Where is my Yahoo? Where is my YouTube? Where is my NewYorkTimes.com? China has banned it for national security reasons yeah. because maybe their former government would be at risk mm. if people knew what was going on in China. Yeah. Right? Free and mutual access has been a major issue along the way, no doubt. But we also have talked about this before, which is uh, the idea that you know U.S. corporations have just played along for a long time in order not to unsettle or disrupt the China market because they see it as a major a potential growth market for their products and services, and therefore they say, yeah, let's not be overreactive about this. Now, as labor costs rise and you know the comparative value of, of manufacturing in China versus back in the U.S. or other markets is starting to narrow, everyone's starting to say, well, we need a little more of a fair playing field. So I, I do detect a little bit of hypocrisy in, in the approach, right? I get your point, and I understand that China needs to evolve and is evolving, uh, but at the same time, I know there's been a tolerance from U.S. corporations for as long as they could soak a few margins. Well, you know, we'll have to look at each individual company, but I would say no one company or institution or even country uh, has the monopoly on hypocrisy. Because when I think about hypocrisy, I often think about what China says. So I think, uh, um, you know, blame goes all around, but let's not play the blame game. Let's think through how can we move things forward because a more balanced trading relationship uh, with China is again to the benefit 
of the Chinese people, not just you know the Western companies or Asian companies. They're trying to produce and sell to Chinese people too. Yeah, no argument there. <laughs> so Curtis, when it thinks uh, when you I think about your portfolio life and all the different interesting things you're involved in, what role do you see for yourself in the next three to five to ten years? Uh, you have a, a unique perspective, one that many corporate leaders or government officials don't have. Like you say, you're a bit of a hybrid. Where do you see yourself going and what role will you play in or, order to continue this show moving forward? Well, you know, no matter what sector I'm in, uh, private sector, public sector, not for profit sector, this entrepreneurial life, I also leave. Um, my hope, my commitment is to continue to be an advocate. Uh, for some of the things that I live day to day, uh, the need to integrate uh, public, private, not profit, not for profit sectors, and thinking uh, to achieve what will I hope be a common goal of shared prosperity uh, for everyone. You know, one of the things that you know, for my communications life, I always think about. We can talk for like thirty minutes. Will people really remember anything, or what are the two or three things that people remember? And one thing I always want people to remember is that, you know, when I go on uh, to talk about economies, people often say, well, who will be that next great economy? You know, way back when, a Goldman Sachs economist named Jim O'Neill uh, helped popularize this notion of the brick. Brazil, Russia, India, and China, these four really great nations that would lead the next wave of economic growth and development. And so people say to me, who will be that next brick? And you know, usually I don't like to pick a country because whatever country I'm in, they want me to say their country. Right. Uh, so what I often say is that, you know, I, I worry less about who will be the next brick. I worry about what I call the little brick. Little brick is not a country. Uh, it's bureaucracy. Uh, it's regulation, uh, it's inequality, and it's corruption. And I, for me, I feel this little brick is often what holds back an economy or an institution or an individual company. So I, in this next three to five years, I want to continue to bring attention to these issues. Clearly, we need a balance. Clearly, we need bureaucrats. We need a government. Clearly, we need regulation. Uh, I don't think we ever need uh, inequality, but the reality is that inequality will exist, but let's fight for equality of access to capital. But inequality may well exist as people develop differently. And I don't think we ever need corruption. Uh, but very clearly, it all goes back to the definition. So that next three to five years, I want to continue to be involved, continue to be an advocate for some of these same issues, the value of impact investing, the value for people, to, the ability for people to make money, but also to make a real difference. Curtis, as always, a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, let me give a shout out to Bali also, that, where I thought up a lot of these things. So I'll see you, Stephen Bali, but I hope others will take the chance uh, to visit Bali. People don't always know that you know Bali is just one of, what, some 16,000 islands in Indonesia. And so if I really actually want to pick a nation, I'm going to say to people, we don't spend enough time thinking about Indonesia. It's always in Asia, China, 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 India, India, maybe yeah. Japan. Yeah. But Indonesia is on the move and come to Southeast Asia. And one last factoid for people. People are often surprised to hear there's more combined U.S. foreign direct investment in the 10 nations of Southeast Asia in ASEAN than there is in Brazil, Russia, India, and China combined. So everyone think differently about Asia. And if you're not here, come visit. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you. That was my conversation with Curtis Chin, former U.S. ambassador to the Asia Development Bank, board member, and senior fellow at the Milken Institute. In this week's Asia Insider Minute, we take a look at how we shape our professional lives. 
As a senior executive search consultant and leadership advisor, I've witnessed firsthand thousands of executives who've run the corporate gauntlet to face uncertainty in their waning professional years. They come to me in search of new opportunities in organizations that might value their experience. They come asking for board or advisory positions in order to share or extend accumulated wisdom. Some are fired and put to pasture where their skills and accumulated gifts are wasted on golf courses or squandered volunteering at charities. Too much talent has found the exit. What they should be looking for is a threshold, a passageway that leads not out but up, where the accumulated experiences of a professional life are set back in motion. There's no time to waste. Indeed, the 20th century may well be remembered as something we might call the career era, a time when corporations coalesced around a well-educated class of knowledge workers with offers of training and development, advancement, and financial reward. Not anymore. Look around. Corporate patronage is on the wane. In this new and gritty environment, senior professionals will have no choice but to become increasingly self-directed and self-reliant in pursuit of their own betterment. Corporations won't dissolve, but they will find themselves competing for talent as virtual businesses, social enterprises, specialist pools, and high-tech startups offer new, dynamic, and profitable opportunities to those prepared to sacrifice security for adventure. The things that once bound executives to the corporation, pay, title, and promotion, now appear mundane to this new breed of professional. For them, super causes, universal initiatives, and opportunities to innovate on the fly represent new ideals for a new era. What will become of those who've spent years in corporate servitude? How cognizant are they of these changes? How many are at risk of losing jobs prematurely? For those who want more and to do more, how will they reorient and retool themselves for this new era? And need I mention artificial intelligence? What happens when AI solutions render half of the global workforce obsolete in less than a decade? Why should we expect today's corporate and organizational leaders to be relevant or even remotely equipped to perform in a hyper-dynamic, machine-driven world? Against this backdrop, a senior professional's chances of being pushed aside or pushed out has never been greater. Apocalyptic stuff, right? But this is Inside Asia, and we prefer to leave our listeners with a bit of hope. So here's our advice. When sitting head in hands in your corner office or workstation, do this one thing. Think of Curtis. Yeah, sure, he's had his fair share of breaks and opportunities, but it was his choice to springboard from the corporate world to become a portfolio professional. That can be your choice as well. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Inside Asia. What kind of portfolio life are you living? If you're not, but you're intrigued at the idea, what would it take to make the leap and shape a profession on your terms? It's possible. Curtis is proof. Drop us a line. Let's talk about it. There's more where this came from. We're fast approaching our 100th episode, all offering in-depth conversations with some of the sharpest and most well-informed insiders throughout Asia. Is there a topic we haven't covered? Let us know. To subscribe and download any or all of our episodes, visit Inside Asia at iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. That's a wrap for this week. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia.